1: Good afternoon and welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of fight back from the week that was last weekend was marked by protests around the world sparked by the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis here in Toronto and in other Canadian cities, the demonstrations were peaceful. And some of our political leaders, including Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, expressed solidarity with the protesters by taking a knee and promising action against systemic anti black racism. We're also hearing more calls to defund the police and have these resources channeled to communities instead. Around the world, people are asking will this time be different? Will it bring change? And where are we at here in Ontario? Libby's Snymer gathered a panel of local experts, all black, to comment. Dr. Akwasi Uwusubempa, Assistant Professor of Sociology at the University of Toronto, Mississauga. Anthony Morgan, a racial justice lawyer, advocate, and speaker, as well as Nigel Barif, President of the Urban Alliance on Race Relations.
2: I think it's... um we, what we see, what we're feeling, um, is that we have to make change. This, that this is about Regis um, Paquette, who who lost her life with police officers that were in the room. This is about George Floyd, who who lost his life because a police officer had his neck, his knee on his neck. It's happened too many times, and you know what? What we're seeing is that enough is enough. We've had too many reports. We've had too many promises. Yet. You know, people within our community continue to die. So this, the anti-black racism has to stop.
3: Anthony Morgan, do you think this time will be different?
4: I think it largely depends on whether uh, enough whether enough of uh, your listeners or folks in community see the value of Black people and their lives beyond this moment. So I think it really is up to us to determine collectively as a society, it's not just a black problem. It's certainly not just a white problem. It's our society problem. It's a human rights problem. Uh, we have, uh, as all people, uh, fundamental human rights to be treated as equal. And what uh, black communities and their allies are, are really saying is, come join us in our collective struggle for humanity on this issue. So whether or not it will really bring change will depend on Uh, how long people pay attention to this issue and whether or not they're willing to continue to work in solidarity with Black communities beyond this moment.
3: What about this new uh, battle cry, defund the
4: police? What I think is really important for us to realize is that uh, when when it comes to public funds, we have to be good stewards of our money. This is public resources and, and government politicians, they have to be good stewards of it, especially in this time of COVID where Governments are struggling to find resources, but if you look at the history of how we've funded, especially at the city level, our different services, police services, they get dramatic amounts of money, whereas our services for health care, community services, parks and rec, child care, transportation they get a small fraction comparatively to what the police get. So these calls about defund the police aren't about hating the police. They're not about uh, violence against the police. What they're really about is saying, hey, we actually have this other pool of services that we really, really need to support the well-being, inclusion, belonging, and thriving of our communities. So why don't we redirect some of those resources and and, uh, create
2: more of an equal balance on this? Also, to build on what Anthony's saying, the city has the response. The city, the the mayor and the twenty-two councilors, are the ones that are in charge of this budget. They also have policies that the board has to that the the the, the city has to hold it's um, hold the police accountable to our human rights um, and our anti-black uh, policies that the that they are responsible to, and if the if the Toronto Police Services aren't meeting them, aren't meeting up to them, then they have year, a fiduciary responsibility to follow up and hold the police accountable. That's why we're at the Urban Alliance. We've asked, we've called for a public inquiry into circumstances that happened um, around the death of just of um Of
3: I'd like to now bring in Dr. Akwazi Owusu-Bempe. He is an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Toronto in Mississauga. With this new rallying cry, defund the police, what's your take on it?
5: Yeah, I think this is, you know, a a very necessary, uh, fiscally responsible thing to do, as well as something that's been a long time coming. Um, You know, I I, I know both Nigel and Anthony very well, and I'm sure they've provided a, a lot of perspective like mine. but. Uh, we've had modern policing for about 200 years, 100 years in this country. And over that time, we've simply asked the police to do more and more, and their budgets reflect that. Uh, I think when many people hear defund the police, they, they're thinking of police abolition, which is not what is being discussed here. What's really being discussed, some people are calling for police abolition, but defunding is really simply a realignment of the roles and responsibilities that are given to police, having many of those directed to other organizations or institutions that are better equipped, deal with those matters and a reallocation
2: of the funds to go with that.
1: Dr. Akwasi Owusu-Bempa, Assistant Professor of Sociology at the University of Toronto, Mississauga. Anthony Morgan, a racial justice lawyer, advocate and speaker, as well as Nigel Barif, President of the Urban Alliance on Race Relations. They were in conversation with Libby Snymer on Monday. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Potentially life-saving damage control continues in some of Ontario's long-term care. Care homes where there have been COVID 19 outbreaks. Woodbridge Vista Care community is now being temporarily managed by the William Osler Health System in Brampton. And military personnel were also called into Woodbridge Vista Care, where at least 22 residents have died after contracting COVID 19. It's a development the CEO of Siena Senior Living, which owns the home, characterizes as good news. The extra help comes just days after another top executive of that same company, Joanne Dyckman, was dismissed from her job after allegedly mocking families of long term care residents, calling them blood sucking class action lawsuits people. Our Zoomer Squad discussed this with Libby on Monday. David Kravitz, Vice President at Zoomer Media; Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine; and Marissa Lennox, Chief Policy Officer at CARP, A New Vision of Aging.
6: Ageism is 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 so pervasive in our society we don't even recognize it anymore, and and it's so clear that you know our our seniors have been let down by every level of government. Um, from the very start of this pandemic through to now. And I think that there is an appetite on the part of our government to address what's going on in long-term care, but the problems are so deep and they're so large, they don't even know where to start. And also keep in mind the people that are making decisions around how to fix our long-term care homes, many of them have not even stepped foot in a long-term care home haven't seen four-bedroom wards, haven't seen how narrow the hallways are, haven't tasted the food that's served in these facilities. So that's a real problem.
7: Yeah, and, and Mercy, you really got the sense when, when the Army report came out that for many of the... Uh you know, many of the government officials were surprised by it all. You know, like, it, 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 it was the first time they were hearing of it, it seemed. You know?
3: Well, yeah, so. and that's, uh, you got to wonder about that. It was very interesting. On Friday, the Registered Nurses Association released 35 reports going back 20 years, with the proviso that we really don't need another commission or inquiry or whatever. Mm-hmm. We know what the problems are. But... I mean, it. You know, if that doesn't underscore the situation, I don't know what does. Thirty-five
2: well, reports. It, there's a sloppiness that pervades all of this that is very alarming, and I think it's exacerbated by what you just said, Olivia, about the reports dating back twenty. I mean, 189 inspectors of nursing homes in Ontario conducted a grand total of nine. Uh, inspections
3: last year. So uh, you know, still with long term care, we saw yet another long term care home taken over by the government. The management handed to William Osler, and it's the same one where we saw another uh, top executive fired for just being really callous, really callous about the loved ones of people in that system. So where does this leave us? I mean, there, there is a big issue about whether private long-term care homes should be gone if because most of the problems are with them does does this just uh, prove that
7: I think it does Libby I I, I think uh, you know their bread and butter is really retirement homes that's where they make most of their money and, and I think we'll see a shift uh, of the long-term care element over to a more hospital like setting run by the province or, or non-profit and, and uh, let the let the homes do the, re- the retirement, you know, uh, villas, which they do very well and they make a lot of money on.
3: Yeah, but is that just going to shift the burden? There are a lot of people, including Samir Sinha, who is one of our top geriatricians who basically says whatever we do should also cover the retirement home sector because just as people are older and frailer in long-term care, the same thing is happening in retirement homes. And and often, Marissa, as you've said many times, they're there because they can't get into long-term care. That's right. You know, I'm not convinced that eliminating the
6: private sector from long-term care is the single Solution that will fix long-term care. There are just so many problems with this system, from staffing to underfunding, and and you do worry about injecting more cash into this sector and what the long-term care, the private homes in the long-term care sector, will do with that money. Will they just, you know, will it go toward their bottom line, or will it actually go toward frontline staff? Um, I can honest to God say I was just disgusted by. Ms. Dykeman's comment referring to families as blood-sucking class action lawsuits people. I think it's horrible that these people even exist in this space. And I think hopefully what comes out of all of these inspections and investigations is that there will be a very clear list of people that shouldn't be in this industry, and they should go elsewhere, because there's just no question that there are some really bad actors, and they shouldn't be operating homes.
1: Marissa Lennox, Chief Policy Officer at CARP, Peter Muggridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine, and David Kravit, Vice President at Zoomer Media, Fight Back's Monday Zoomer Squad. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. The Trudeau Liberals are trying to legislate stiff penalties for Canadians who are fraudulently receiving the Canada Emergency Response Benefit. These would range from fines to six months in jail for people who make false or misleading claims or fail to declare income they made while applying for or collecting the benefit. It's a scenario far from the government's previous stance when the Canada Revenue Agency was reportedly encouraged to ignore suspicious activity and just get the money out to people as quickly as possible. Joining Libby Snymer on Tuesday to discuss our crack strategy panel of Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard Highroad, and Charles Bird, Managing Principal of Ernst Cliffe Strategy Group in Toronto.
7: The CERB as it was originally introduced in late March was an effort to help those who are out of work due to the pandemic. And now the question is, what do we do going forward? The name of the game now that we have uh, a few months of experience under our belt is to confront fraud, right? Which is that there's going to be a small number of people who always think that they can game the system, that they can make a fast buck, as well as ensuring that there are return to work provisions, which is to say that folks. Um, will not be eligible for further income support if they fail to return to work when it's reasonable to do so and their employer asks them to, or if they fail to resume self-employment when it's reasonable to do so, or if they decline a reasonable job offer.
3: John, uh, what's your take? Are they trying to look tougher when they looked like they were just throwing the money out the door?
7: I quite frankly think it's all about economics. I think the government rightly uh, put this program in place at a time when it was needed and and Canadians were, were desperate to find some level of, of revenue or, or income to be able to supplement what they might have lost in order to keep rent and, and keep their uh, supplies going and, and, quite frankly, to live. So uh, it grew beyond far beyond what, what the government anticipated and what expected. And I think the government has, has rightly said, look, if you, if, you don't, if you don't have to do this program, then I, I would en- I would encourage the employers to use the wage subsidies so that we can hire people back uh, in order to, uh, to get the economy rolling again. And I think that that's what they're trying to push. Is uh, is for people to go on the wage subsidy program versus the uh, the relief benefit pr- plan, uh, and I'm not sure how successful that is. So I, I do think that it's something that they are needing to do. And uh, but again, we'll see what what details come out of the uh, the legislation. I know that the NDP are are crying foul. Uh, the Conservatives are waiting to see what the details are, but something that has to obviously stop, and because and, uh, we just can't afford to keep doing that, especially if people are, are taking the money when they don't deserve it or need it.
3: Karen, do you see anything uh, a little strange,
8: or do you see it as a disincentive to people going back to work? We're recognizing the unintended consequences of a well-meaning program that was rolled out to meet an emergency situation, um, but now we understand the implications of that, because I've recalled workers that... Um, to put them on the the wage subsidy and take them off the CERB, and they've chosen not to come back. Because it's more advantageous for them to be collecting the CERB than it is to be collecting 75% of their wage. And uh, are they
3: aware? I mean, are you going to extend that possibility to them when this draft legislation passes? Well,
8: and see, and this is to the point the devil's in the details, because I don't think anybody's acting fraudulently. I think they're acting rationally. And so... We, we've created a situation that now has put people in a position where they're just making rational choices based on the options that are available to them, but they are expensive for the government to maintain. And so I think that moving forward, it shouldn't be couched in terms of fraud, because I don't know that many people are behaving fraudulently, but they, we certainly want to shift that behavior away from the CERB onto you know, taking employment positions. And if the government is going to subsidize wages for employers, then it does beg the question, how long do you then provide direct support to people that are not accepting those jobs? Assuming that this
3: passes with those provisions,
8: are you going to
3: reach out to those workers again and see if they want to come back on board, or is that it?
8: Well, for us, it's hard because we've had no income since March. And if we don't have any income until September, I, you know, it creates another set of issues as an employer to deal with. There's um, a mounting problem ahead in terms of as the workforce shifts and changes and new opportunities become available, but other opportunities may not be available to go back to, how is the government going to support both businesses and workers? And while this program was well-intended for a, a particular period of time, it's not one that we can afford on an ongoing basis.
1: Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, and Charles Byrd, Managing Principal of Earnscliffe Strategy Group in Toronto. Fightbacks. Tuesday strategy panel. The latest emergency aid bill did not pass in the House of Commons this past week. Behind the scenes, negotiating is said to be ongoing to get a deal among the Trudeau liberals and the opposition leaders for this coming week. This is The Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Life is slowly starting to return to normal, but some people are complaining that the rules are confusing and sometimes inconsistent. Fight back went to the experts for their takes on the rules. Dr. Colin Furness, epidemiologist and professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University, and Dr. Alan Vaseman, an infectious diseases specialist with the University Health Network.
9: So I think it's important to recognize what what we mean by asymptomatic individual. So somebody at the moment where you assess them and they test positive for the virus, they could have no symptoms for three reasons. One. Uh, is that they are pre-symptomatic. So they're about to have symptoms It's just a day or two away, or on average, at least two or three days away. The second is that they're post-symptomatic, which means they previously had symptoms, but now are resolving, the disease is resolving, and they no longer have symptoms. And three is that they never had symptoms. They're one of the individuals who had the virus, but never knew it because they never had symptoms. So you can only know The situation between those three if you look retrospectively. And uh, once you have a positive test and then somebody has symptoms, you just don't know which one of those three individuals you are. So when they were referring to patients who have no symptoms, not transmitting the virus, they were more likely referring to the third group who uh, will never have symptoms. And we're not clear about how many of those people can transmit, but we think that's a lower proportion compared to those who are pre-symptomatic, which we do know have a high likelihood of transmitting the virus.
3: I'd like to bring in Dr. Colin Furness, uh, who is an epidemiologist and professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University. And, and what do you make of, of the uh, WHO first saying that asymptomatic transmission was rare, walking it back today? What's your take on that?
5: Well, I agree with the previous comments that, you know, asymptomatic means a few different things. You know, I would actually add a fourth category, and it's specific to COVID, which is to say they're symptomatic, but the symptoms are invisible. In other words, we've got kids especially whose lungs are full of virus, who have pneumonia in both lungs. They feel fine. Their lungs don't notice that they're under attack but they're there. That's symptomatic. You see it on a test x-ray, but when you look at someone, they feel fine. Those are the people we need to be really concerned about because, and I don't care what the WHO says, someone who's got two lungs full of virus is going to be contagious no matter how they feel. So that's the group I'm really worried about. And I think it, it could be that the WHO really did kind of mix their messages and their words about what asymptomatic really means.
3: Dr. Furness, I know that you've been concerned that we are reopening too soon. Do you still feel that way?
5: most most definitely most definitely and I'm, I'm I'm glad we're now taking a regional approach in Ontario because Ontario was a really a combination of opening later than we needed to for much of the province where there is very little covid and much too early for places where there are which obviously includes GTA so there's a few things I'd like to walk
9: back I'd like to stop recreational shopping
3: Alon Vaseman, do you think that we are reopening too soon?
9: Uh, yeah, I think there's certain parts of Ontario which really shouldn't be opening anymore, doing any more that we're doing currently. Uh, that's especially the GTA where the case numbers are still very high from day to day. There's been kind of an up and down trend over the last few weeks, some stabilization, but not the decline that we would want to see before we open things up. But there are other sections of Ontario where there is a decline of cases, which it may more make more sense especially those that are more remote from areas that we are seeing a lot of COVID cases, to start very slowly easing up on some of the restrictions, especially those that won't involve having people from the infected areas come to those areas. So, for example, small family gatherings. That would be quite different to open up in a remote area or in an area that's not affected versus uh, something like a theme park or a large uh, open gathering area like, like a park.
3: Colin Furness, what would you like to leave us with as we head into more reopening?
5: Very simply, you can lock people down to get rid of the pandemic or you can test your way out of it. You can do t- lots of testing or lockdown. Ontario hasn't done a great job at either. Now that we're loosening up, we need to increase our testing capacity like an order of magnitude. That's urgent now.
3: Dr. Baseman?
9: I think the public needs to realize that just because things are opening up doesn't mean the threat is gone. They need to maintain all the things that we've been discussing all these months, the hand hygiene, keeping distance, the wearing the mask indoors, and also being vigilant about symptoms that that really won't end anytime soon.
1: Dr. Alan Vaisman, an infectious diseases specialist with the University Health Network, and Dr. Colin Furness, epidemiologist and professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the week. Mike in Toronto phoned to ask about the spread of COVID-19.
9: What does the, the government or the health officials know about this virus that they're not really uh, telling us? In other words, you know, does this virus have the ability to uh, to mutate? And uh, because you notice that the people in these homes are, uh, these senior homes are are getting sick, and I notice that the youth, when I, for example, when I go grocery shopping once a week, I notice that that the youth that work there, they seem to be unaware. They don't pay any attention to distancing
0: or anything. They they just seem to be quite unaware. And now, Fight Back's knockout call of the week. There were a lot of great
1: calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Norm in Toronto, who hopes he'll be celebrating his milestone birthday
4: by going out. I'll be turning 65 on June 30th, and my lady and I are actually looking forward to going to a restaurant. But on the other hand, I've become rather adept at baking pies from scratch. so (laughs) I've made the best of what I can with this isolation.
1: Haven't we all, Norm? Enjoy your birthday. That does it for today's best to fight back on Zoomer radio. If you'd like to qualify for the fight back knockout call of the week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby and have your say anytime on our fight back voicemail at 416. 416- 367-9636 416-367-9636 I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of The Best of Fight Back.
0: The Best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi with technical production by Kelly Robotham, executive producer Moses Nimer